Well, welcome to the Monday Minute episode of the Hunt Back Country podcast. Uh, these Monday Minute episodes are where we answer your listener questions. So pretty short and formal. Joined by Steve. How's it going, man? Good. Other than my dog just dropped a bomb in the room. I can't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> and you said just <sighs> five seconds before hit record, you had to go close the door. So now you're trapped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my eyes are watering. Holy cow. Uh, real <laughs> life. That's funny. <laughs> Um, yeah, just a couple, a couple quick things to mention. This is, uh, the first Monday minute, um, of June. So it's, uh, June to me is always a big kind of like change in mindset of like, okay, it's really summer. Goodness gracious. Hunting season's coming awfully stinking quick. So June's always exciting. Cause I, I really feel like it kicks off, uh, the preseason kind of officially for me anyway, in my head. Um, but one thing new in June is we do have a giveaway going on through Exo Mountain Gear, um, not necessarily tied specifically to the podcast, but just wanted to share it with the podcast audience. Um, so we're giving away um, some cool prizes from partners. I'll leave a link in the show description if you guys want to hop over to the website and check that out. But you can win um, a shelter and some trekking poles and the wiser purses and quick sticks and um, kind of a cool little gear package. So just want to make sure that uh, you guys who loyally listen to the podcast had an opportunity to go check that out um, if you haven't already. And it's real simple. It's uh, just head over there and um, give us the email. We do, if you guys, again, listen to the podcast, but don't get our emails. We do usually a weekly email um, and it's tied with helpful content. So sometimes it is tied you know, to share in the podcast episode. Um, we also share articles and videos and things like that, uh, as a recent example, um, really just last night, an email went out with a article I put together on essentially the gear that never leaves my pack, um, which was really spurred by a, a podcast question. And I'll probably, uh, should chat through it here on the podcast more in depth, but this whole idea of no matter where you're hunting or what you're hunting or what season it is and whether it's a day hunt or like a 10 day hunt, like what are those things that are kind of always in your pack for, for all hunts really. And so I kind of shared at least for me, what that looks like. Um, so that's a, a good example. I'll leave the link to that in the show description, but those are the types of things you would also get. Um, if you receive our emails, for example, so it's a, uh, that gear that never leaves my pack. It's, I think it's one of the it was like the realization of that, that kind of led me into, um, I don't know what, what kind of style you call it, but packing up camp every single day. It was that the gear that is like backpacking specific got so lightweight that it was mm-hmm. six, seven pounds, you know, it, it, got, it got really light. You're talking quilt pad, uh, whatever your tent is, you know, for me, it's a baby sack and tarp, but, um, yes, yeah, cool, cool article and definitely realize that uh, there's just stuff that's always there no matter what and the difference between that and backpacking is really not that much stuff people like to overthink it right um, mm-hmm. but if you just kind of keep it simple it makes the approach a lot easier yeah for sure um before we dive into listener questions steve anything we've talked about this idea of anything new anything we're trying anything like that does anything come to mind for you gear wise or otherwise uh, or training (laughs) still trying to find the perfect shoe for the death hike this year um i know i can default to the the uh solomon cross hikes that i wore last year they just um it was one of the first solomons i've had that i had durability issues with like all the the x ultra mids that i was wearing for years 
I was wearing the mids and the lows. Those always performed well. The XA Pro 3Ds always held up well, but these those cross hikes definitely, you know, after 100 miles of Frank Church, they were done. Um, so I've been, I know I can default to those, but I've been just trying other stuff. So I'll uh, hopefully here in the next three weeks, I'll have a report for you on uh, if I found anything new. So I mentioned to you, Steve, I, I was kind of trying a couple options and I've gone back to sanity really <laughs> and sticking <laughs> with my Hanwags. Um, I've worn those last year's death hike and really for every hunt pretty much in the last two years, I've either worn the Hanwag Maka treks or the Alverstones and have played with a lot of other boots and training and things like that. But, um, I'm definitely just back to, okay, like there's no greener grass on any other side of this equation. I'm going to stick with what works. Um, one thing I will say is, and, and we, we need to revisit this. We, you and I, Steve last year, um, each got a handful of different insoles to play with and test with. Mm-hmm. And I still want to revisit that and kind of talk about not only the specific insoles we have, but you know, how you pair insoles with different shoes and yep. volume. And there's, there's a lot there to be honest with you. Um, but I will say having tried a bunch of options in the last year, really at the end of the day, that one that worked best for me, um, was the super feet trailblazers and I've worn super feet in the past and, you know, going back to, I feel like call it way back in the day, it seems like they had like super feet green and then like one other option. And now there's just like countless, countless options, but I've tried a ton of them over the last 10 years. Um, but it wasn't until this past year, year and a half, I got those trailblazers and I've used them in a lot of different boots. Um, and then very consistently in the Hanwags I just mentioned and, um, again, after trying a bunch of different boots, a bunch of different insoles, a bunch of different combinations of all the above, um, those are the ones that I'm gonna just going to stick with for sure. Um, and so I actually just ordered a brand new pair of those to, to have for this hunting season. So kind of relegating my older pair of handwags with my older set of insoles to a bunch of training miles this summer, and then just making sure that, uh, a newer pair of boots and a newer pair of insoles is you know, used enough to make sure there's no surprises, but really kind of keep those fresh for all the big adventures this year. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I know those Honda Mokra treks that you wore last year on the death hike, you were finished the hike and you were absolutely in love with them. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Tough to, tough to depart from that when there's no reason to. Yeah. All right. Well, diving into listener questions. Um, this first one we'll tackle an exo question and it's about our K3 crib load panel. Hi, uh, my name is Mike, and I'm going to be purchasing my first um, backcountry backpack hunting pack through you guys. And I had a question regarding the K3 crib um, strapping that you you put on the back. How often do you utilize that with your pack attached, or is it specifically for just no pack attached, no bag attached? and carrying loads or is it valuable to have it with the pack um i'm just uh, just curious on if it's uh, worth even purchasing it or will the pack secure the load by itself uh, thank you for the opportunity all right so very common questions there about the crib load panel uh number one is it needed number two do you use it if you're only using the frame by itself with no bag attached can you use it with both the crib and the bag attached to the frame, et cetera. So, um, I guess do you first like 
just a high level, quick rundown on uh, tackling those questions and really the purpose of the crib. The crib, uh, its original design intention was to make the frame capable of hauling loads without the bag attached. Um, wanted to, you know, be able to just take the bag off and haul, you know, obviously elk quarters out of the mountains or, you know, training bags. If you want to just haul sand, stuff like that. So for me, I just leave the crib. I always have a crib with me, especially if I'm say I'm going solo elk hunting. We've always talked about having that bin in the truck of your backups. Right. Um, and to me, there, for me, there's always a crib in there because if I kill something and you know, I, I, it's not crazy far from the road where I can just throw a granola bar in my pocket and, and a water bottle and then hike in there. Um, that's where the crib's awesome. A lot of guys swear by the crib. They have it attached between the bag and the frame at all times. It does, for lack of kind of a better term, like dumb down the loading process uh, of getting meat onto the frame. It just simplifies, um, just becomes more apparent. Like you put the crib on there, you put the meat on, you fold the crib over, you cinch it all down, and then the bag just kind of floats on the backside. Um, so it certainly just kind of makes that process a touch easier. But uh, me being a weight weenie, you know, it adds five, six ounces to the pack. That's just like, that's weight. I don't need necessarily want to carry around all the time. So it's a super universal piece. A lot of guys use it for shed hunting. Um, like I said, I primarily, uh, use a crib for hauling sandbags. If I'm training and doing training hikes, which is a great reason to buy it. If you plan on doing a lot of training hikes and, you know, it just keeps your, you know, you've got this $650 backpack, it at least takes $300 of that and leaves it at home all the time in the bag. Um, and then you're just using the frame in the crib. So definitely a, a good piece. And, and like everything we design is simple, easy to use, and, uh, just has a lot of, um, a lot of uses, I guess you could say. So, um, definitely, uh, not, and then I guess it's not needed to haul meat by any means. Um, I, you know, I'm just, you pull the bag off the frame. You got the two compression straps that are, that are sewn to the frame. They're there all the time, strap the meat to it. You just, again, you gotta be conscious of making sure you're Putting the meat in there, setting it high. Um, if you're, if I'd encourage you to watch that video we did packing out your bull last year. Um, uh, I think I can't remember what that's called, loading elk quarters or something like that, uh, on our YouTube channel, and it, it walks you through loading up the pack with, you know, basically I had full kit. You know, my bag was full with three, four days of gear, rifle, and then we threw, uh, I think I threw a hind quarter and mis miscellaneous bag of meat on the frame. So, um, yeah, definitely I would check that out. Yeah, I'll leave links to an overview video of the crib itself, as well as that meat loading video, uh, which doesn't utilize the crib, just so you see how it works without the crib as well. Um, we'll leave links to those videos. Yeah, just to reiterate what you said, Steve, I use it a ton for training. Um, it's obviously great if you just want to use the frame by itself as a load hauler, whether that's for training or packing out loads um, from the field. Something that I don't think we've necessarily shown as much, but I've seen guys get a lot of value out of um, is you can actually run our frame with the crib without your bag, but then also still have your lid. Um, and so the, the best way to do that is we have a, an accessory just called the lid strap set. It's like $4.99, I think. Um, but you can basically have your lid connected to the frame and the crib. And so if you wanted to go in with, you know, some essentials, right? So uh, whether that's an extra layer or your first aid kit or some sort of gear in the lid and then just have the crib for load hauling, um, that's a, a pretty slick way to run as well. So 
that's maybe something to check out and consider, but yeah, look for those videos there. Um, the two times I recommend the crib most beyond what we just discussed of with the frame only the two times I recommend it. If you're using it with a bag is one, if you know that you're going to do boned out meat, um, the crib can just help, you know, kind of give that boned out meat some structure. And that would apply to things like a bear hide as well. So it could be helpful. Um, or two, as you mentioned, Steve, if guys are just newer to loading meat, um, newer to packing an animal out of the back country, and they're just kind of looking for a bit of the easy button and a bit of reassurance on, Hey, I don't have to worry about doing this quote unquote, right. Like, as you said, the crib just kind of makes things easier, more forgiving. So, um, if you do a ton of boned out meat or other shifty loads, like hides, it could be helpful. Or if you're just new and you kind of want a bit of the easy button and not have to be as intentional or experienced in how you load things, then the crib can help with that as well between the bag and the frame. All right, Steve, I'm, I'm springing this question on you. I didn't tell you about it first. It's short and sweet. And, uh, I found it quite funny. Bring it on. What do your wives think of your podcasting popularity? <laughs> so the reason I found that funny is knowing my wife, knowing your wife and how little they could care about <laughs> supposed podcast popularity. I just thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Um, I, do, I don't think your wife thinks you're all that special, Steve. Well, I'm not all that special. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. It's uh, it is funny Like we go, um, you know, I, I think we've mentioned this before on the podcast. Like it's, it's just you and I chatting back and forth as if we're just sitting in the room together and that happens to go out on the interwebs uh, and people listen to it. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it doesn't feel like there's a large audience or anything because we just talk, but it is when we go to trade shows and whatnot, it's, it's always really fun to see the, the amount of people that come up and talk to us and, oh, I listened to this podcast or that one. And um, so it's cool. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly enjoy being able to add value to um, people's lives and, and help, you know, basically make them better hunters. So uh, along with myself, right. I have all these inter get, interview, all these great guests on here that we get to learn from. So a lot of it's selfish. Yeah. hundred percent. I get a ton of value out of having the conversations. Um, I, mean, I think if we go back to the very beginning, we launched in 2015, it was, that was the whole point of i remember very specifically the old exo office on um on grove Down there grove, downtown sure. boise and you and i mentioning a podcast and basically the premise was we know some cool people and get to have cool conversations let's do that publicly like let's just yeah. have those conversations and hit record uh and here we are gosh coming up on seven years later and yeah which is insane but that's really honestly how i feel about it like it's it's an incredible uh, like luxury for me to be able to reach out to some guys and be like, Hey, can we talk? And like, here's a legitimate reason why, like we have this podcast and yada, yada. But at the end of the day, as you said, a lot of that times that's like selfish of getting to meet cool people and get great information and having an excuse to people give me their time for an hour for free and not pay for it because <laughs> they're getting value <laughs> out of being on a podcast. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I think I remember like, I don't know how long a podcast could run because you're just like, you're going to run out of topics eventually, but we sure, uh, we haven't even struggled yet with that. Like, it just seems to be a never ending list of stuff. And sure, we cover things, you know, we've covered, we've had episodes that cover the same topic, but really it's like a different angle and a different guest. And there's just always something new to learn. Yeah. I feel like every 
like even recently, um, we've, we've talked about this series and, and mentioned it on the podcast here, but we haven't released any yet. There's kind of two different new ideas or new series that we're uh, literally recording right now. Um, we have one after this, for example, but um, we're doing the listener stories, which we've done before, but we're doing a before and after. And so we're talking to guys before their hunts, you know, how are they planning? How did this hunt come together? How are they training? Um, how are they scouting and gear, like all the before planning stuff. And then we're talking to those same guys after their hunt and, you know, getting them the story and how did it go and expectations and reality and all that stuff. So like, that's an example of something completely new, um, that I think is going to be really, really helpful to have the before and after. Um, and then the other one that we'll have more episodes coming out on is, um, we're calling it reverse engineering success. And so it's great to get on and and tell a hunting story um, that ended in success, but like, let's take a backwards approach with this series and start at the end. So start at the success and kind of work backwards and break that hunt apart and talk about the different moments and decisions that were made that led to the success. So those are just like two examples of like, Oh, this is cool. This is new. This is exciting. Even though we've been doing this seven years, we've never done this type of conversation before, which is cool. All right. This, uh, this listener question came through Steve, um, just very recently from a, this guy's recent bear hunt, uh, his question has a little bit of a story to it. So it's a little bit longer, Uh, But I think there's a good takeaway in here, even though this guy's situation was unique, as we'll um, hear about, there's some takeaways that I think really all of us should consider. Hey, guys, my name is Kyle. I'm a big fan. Um, I have an ethical question for you. I was in the backcountry of Idaho in a wilderness area. I was about 10 miles in. Didn't expect to see too many hunters, of course, which I didn't. But um, I found myself spotting a bear from about 800 yards out one evening. This was last week. Um, I begin my stock and I'm walking down the trail to close the gap to get within a better shooting distance. When I'm about 400 yards out, um, out of the corner of my eye, I see this hunter up on the hill above me, about 20 yards above me, kind of waving. So I wait a minute for him to get down to the trail and we introduce ourselves and talk. And I tell him, hey, I'm stalking a bear right now i'm closing the distance to shoot it and um he asked me about the bear and uh he said you know where the bear's at i'm like yeah it's just you know up the trail another few hundred yards um which led me to believe that he did not know where this bear was at and he had not seen it today so he goes on to say to me after i described the color phase of the bears like a light chocolate he said Oh yeah, I actually came here specifically for that bear. I saw it two days ago and filmed it, and um, I came back with a bear tag, and um, I hiked in here specifically for that bear. So he was kind of leading me to believe that he was on this trip specifically for that bear, and he he felt that he had a right to this bear. Um, But he was he was very kind and polite. But anyway, we get up to the bear about eighty yards, and I I end up shooting it. But right at the last minute, he pulls his rifle out and says, who's going to shoot? <laughs> but I say, I'm going to shoot it. And I shoot it. And then afterwards, he kind of puts me on this guilt trip, um, which kind of confused me because I knew where the bear was at. I was stalking it. 
and I let I led him to the bear. He didn't know where it was at. He hadn't seen it that day. Um, so I, I kind of felt guilty afterwards, kind of muscling my way into it. But in the end of the, at the end of the day, I invited him to come along to watch me shoot the bear, and um, I was kind of confused. So I guess my question is, what's the ethics with that? Like he felt like he had a right to that bear because he had seen it a couple days ago and he obviously worked hard to go back into town, get a tag and come back. And, uh, I felt that I had more of a right to it because, um, I knew where the bear was at and I showed him where it was at and then I shot it. So yeah, I, I don't know what the official word on that is, but any opinion would be great to have from somebody else. So let me know. Thanks guys. All right, Steve. So this is a pretty uh, specific story, somewhat unique scenario, I think, but there's some like larger discussion points to pull out of this. Um, The big thing that sticks out to me in this one is whether it's a kind of a call it a freak or unexpected encounter like this, or it's you're just hunting with buddies or in a group or whatever is no know what the plan is, know who's pulling the trigger well before that opportunity ever presents itself. So it kind of, to me, it sounded like in the story, these guys met up, ended up pursuing the bear together, got within shooting range. And then it was like, okay, who's shooting this thing? And I would be like, Hey, well, before we're ever going to decide to pursue this bear together or not, or go separate ways or what have you, like, that's another discussion. But if we are going to put ourselves in a position where we both have a shot opportunity who's shooting. Um, so I, that applies in a, a bunch of different scenarios, not just in this unique story. And there's different ways to do that. I know that, Oh gosh, there's been times where even hunting like the born and raised raised guys, they do different things of like, okay, you know, this guy's a shooter for this day on a multi-day hunt, or this guy's the shooter on this next opportunity and then you know if that gets botched and you know an elk doesn't go down now someone else is a shooter right and you just kind of keep taking turns or maybe it's scenario specific i can think of like when we were hunting in alaska on our caribou hunts and um like the times where we pursued caribou and tyler had a bow and uh, i was there with a rifle i just flat out told him like hey man like if this looks like it's gonna go down with a bow then go for it um, I'm here with a rifle with backup, for example, right? So there's all different ways, but have that have that conversation and a plan in place well before a shot opportunity ever presents itself. Um, I think is the most important thing I pull out of this. But I don't know what what else stands out to you for this this specific scenario, Steve. Or another thing I think it's worth exploring a little bit is how do you handle encounters with other hunters? You know when you're essentially sharing an area. Yeah. Um, well, a, I don't think this guy did anything wrong. I mean, he's the one who saw the bear. He was like on a stock to go kill the bear. I, I, yeah. Other than just, um, you know, as men were known as great communicators, right. Uh, yeah, ask right. all our wives uh, <laughs> and just, I would have just, you know, you're in a situation like that. You need to be very clear upfront, like what, what's your expectations are, what you're doing. Right. So if you just said, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go try to kill this bear. You can tag along with me and watch. Um, then that would have immediately set the guy's expectations that, Oh, okay. 
Um, mm. And he could have then confronted him and said, no, I'm going to kill the bear. Or, you know, I don't know. Um, but no, yeah. Then, like, I don't think this guy did anything wrong. Um, it's weird to me that the dude was in there though. A few days prior without a tag, 10 miles into the wilderness. That doesn't <laughs> right, make yeah. any sense. Unless he was in there hunting wolves and then saw a bear and decided to get a bear tag and come back. That's about the only thing that makes any sense to me. But um, yeah, uh, just communicate, you know, it's uh, we just just on our bear hunt, you know, like we had that I had that opportunity to to shoot that bear. Uh, I didn't want to mess up with your bear hunt, though. Um, And uh, but in hindsight, once you were 100 yards away from me, I was like, I should have freaking asked Mark if he's okay with it. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, elk hunting is a great scenario of, uh, you know, when you got a caller shooter set up. I like when I'm elk hunting with new people or different people, I always ask the question like, Hey, I got my bow. It's going to be sitting next to me. If, if I get a shot, are you okay? If I take it right. Um, and in general, like if you're, you're the hunting, caller, yeah, if you're the caller. Yeah. Um, if the elk comes in from the side or from the back and you get a shot, like to me, it's if, um, I'm 100% okay with that person. If they have a good shot, take it. You know what I mean? The first good shot, take it. And well, you know, especially when you got multiple tags to fill, like don't ever, um, you know, feel like you shouldn't, but that again, you need to talk through that with your hunting partner, especially if it's, uh, you know, maybe somebody that you're new to hunting with and whatnot, you need to be very clear about the expectations. And before you set up on that elk scenario, be like, Hey, is it okay if I shoot? Um, or, you know, it just depends on the situation. So, but yeah, all you can do is communicate. And so everyone has a clear understanding of what's happening. If we brought in this out from like shot opportunities, you know, we've gotten the question a lot and I think it comes, especially from newer hunters who don't know how to handle certain things, or maybe even don't know what to expect on like running into guys, but you know, theoretical scenario, you're archery elk hunting this September, you pack in four miles, you hit this ridge, you're planning on hunting here and there's somebody there, right? Like, do you engage with them? Do you not engage with them? Do you get out of that area completely? Do you like, what are the different, you know, ways to handle such a scenario now and scenario? And I know that each one's unique, but like, what are some, some high level thoughts there? I think as a general rule, who, whoever is there first, uh, you know, should stay. And I'm just going to, you know, like if I see somebody and it's like, they're in front of me in the direction that I'm going, I'm going to, reroute find a new area to go um but if they come up you know if, if i'm there first and they walk into the basin you know you're looking for mule deer or something like that then it just i, I guess i just avoid confrontation I, I want nothing to do with it um so even in that scenario i'll probably just leave unless you know unless you're after like the buck of a lifetime or something like that and then that's where things get even more heated um because people really want to you know kill that big buck or whatever so um yeah i tend to just leave go find a new area um but i think whoever's there first is is a good protocol i think in the instances where it's not like you spot a hunter hunter from hundreds of yards away but you truly you know have an opportunity to kind of either bump into each other directly and are, are forced to somewhat engage with each other or, or you have that opportunity you know where it's like oh they're close proximity they're they're 80 yards away up here maybe they don't even see me yet like, yeah, you could just leave. Um, but when, when things are truly close like that, I would say as much as I really don't like to either Steve engage with other people often at times, especially in the back country, it's like, it's worth finding out what their plans are too. Right. Of like, 
you know, we're both here, right? We're both hunting. Um, if you're in that close proximity to have a conversation, then have the conversation and get a feel for maybe they were just passing through. Maybe they're kind of planning on being in this drainage for two days, like figure out what the plan is so that you don't, you know, walk away from that and just keep on bumping into each other, affecting each other's hunts, for example. But, um, obviously I think I know for ourselves and I think for a lot of guys here, we're, we're trying to avoid those places where you're constantly into people. Um, and really at the end of the day, it's, if you're really bumping into a lot of people, you're probably bumping into more people than, than animals. So maybe, maybe you should just leave, like you said to Steve and be like, Oh, too many people in here. I need to figure something else out. Yeah. Yeah. It's it. Yeah. You're in that scenario. You're elk hunting you run into another, you know, bow hunter 50 yards away. I yeah, go talk with them and be like, Hey, you know, this is what I plan to do. What are you doing? Let's, you know, let's work out something amicable here that we can both go different directions and not bump into each other, especially if you're in a setting where it's, you know, like there shouldn't like this guy's setting where there shouldn't be another hunter there, right? You're 10 miles in the middle of nowhere. Um, but again, for me, I'm like, anytime I've had, um, you know, an experience like this, it just kind of ruins the, the experience. Like this guy now feels guilty about the hunt, right? Um, in some form and, uh, or, you know, he's at least questioning what he did uh, to me. I don't want to, you know, we talk about all the time that the experience is the hunt. Um, so I would rather just have a more positive experience and walk a different direction. And if that means I don't kill an animal that, that day, that's fine. I'll go find one the next day. Um, cause you want, you know, we're out there to have the most fun possible and bumping into people and having, you know, quote unquote drama is, uh, just kind of ruins the experience. All right, let's uh, wrap up with this elk hunting question. My question is, what is the best book or the first book to read for a beginning elk hunter, especially a non-resident elk hunter? Thank you. All right, that question uh, was from Tom. And Tom, I don't have a book recommendation for you, um, but I do have something that uh, I would highly suggest you read in that is the University of Elk Hunting online course through Elk 101. Um, it's organized like a book in many ways. It's chapters. It's very sequential, has a table of contents, and you can jump around. And in addition to reading, it also has videos. Um, and it's it's more interactive than, than just a book. Um, I had to look, Steve, because it's been so while, it's been so long since we've talked about this podcast. And I was like, I know a couple of years ago we had a a code we could share and allow people to save $20. And lo and behold, I looked it up and it actually still works. So there you go. Um, but we'll leave a link to that course. Um, and then the code that you want to use is XO. So that's EXO2020. So EXO20. Um, it'll take $20 off of that course. Um, and 100% like objective, legitimately not paid recommendation type thing. I think it is the best resource out there for new elk hunters and really anyone still gaining experience. Um, and it, it covers everything from, you know, different states and tag opportunities and e-scouting to scouting on the ground to equipment set up, archery for rifle, calling, what to do after the shots. Um, I mean, it's it's a truly comprehensive resource. So not a book specifically, Tom, but definitely if this resource like existed when I started elk hunting, it would have saved me a lot of time and learning. 
uh, for sure. But uh, I don't, to be honest with you, Steve, I, it's funny because I was thinking about this because of my mountain goat hunt and I've picked up a half a dozen books, not necessarily just about mountain goat hunting, but about mountain goats in general. And I was thinking about it. I don't know if I've ever read a single book on elk. Maybe I need to f- fix that. I'm incapable of reading books. So uh, my ADHD <laughs> kicks in and it just doesn't, it doesn't work, man. I could read like an entire chapter and not like, because my mind like, will what wander. What did I read? Yeah. I literally no, no clue what I just read. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I got nothing. If it were mule deer, I would say go get Robbie Denning's books. He has some great stuff. Um, but yeah, for elk, I don't know. So I would just recommend that University of Elk Hunting course. All right. Well, that's a wrap today, guys. As always, we appreciate the questions. We have a ton in the queue to answer for you this summer as we get closer to hunting seasons, but we would love to hear from you listening. Um, if you haven't shared a question yet, look for the link in the show description and you can leave us a quick audio question with whatever device you're using uh, via SpeakPipe. So look for that link, or you can send us a question by email, which is just podcast at exomountgear.com. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app if you haven't already, and we'll talk to you soon.